Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. I'm Kurt Parker, and I'd like you, if you would, open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. It's a desire to lift up Jesus. Where Jesus is lifted up, he draws all men to himself. And so I thank Jacob for bringing those songs to us that allowed us to worship, that you came in from being in the world this week. You were able to bring your heart before the Lord. It's our desire to do that, and so we're going to move into a time where the Lord is going to speak to us now as we've spoken to Him through His Word. We're going to continue study, if you've not been with us, through the letters to First and Second Timothy and Titus. And as is always, as we think about these letters, and we're going to read them, realize that they were written to a first century church, not unlike this one, with elders who led it, and the letter was opened and read and was authoritative. So we still look at it that way today as we open the Word to do that. And if you, it's our desire to minister to you, so if we can do that in any way, answer some questions you may have about the Word of God or any other thing we can do for you, please feel free to contact us there on the seat in front of you. So open our Bibles, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. We're going to start a new section today, and we're going to read that section before we begin, starting in verse 1 through verse 15. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. Verse 4, he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. Verse 5, But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Verse 6, not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Verse 7, and he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Verse 8, deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain. Verse 9, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men also must first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Verse 11, women likewise must be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Verse 12, deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. Verse 13, for those who have served well as deacons, Obtain for themselves a high standing and a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 14, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Of course, that last verse gives us really the theme of these letters to these young pastors at churches that one must that one will know how they ought to conduct themselves in the household of God. So it's authoritative in that respect that it gives guidelines for how the church is to be operated. And so last Lord's Day, we finished the qualifications of elders. As you can see, we work verse by verse, exegetical, expository types of teaching. So you can understand the sense of the passage, what it means, uh, what it means by what it says and how that applies. And so the last two examples were the last two verses there, verses six and seven, let's look there as a review. Not a new convert, says, uh, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. That's the second one to the last. Not a new convert is that word nephotos. It's actually an adjective describing farming. We looked last time and saw that means newly planted, 
tender or fresh. Obviously, the intent here is how it's translated in numerous translations. It's a simile. Paul's speaking about a new convert. Now, notice he doesn't say how new a convert, and we looked at a lot of passages last week because that has to be understood relatively because Paul could have said whatever he wanted to say. He certainly could have said had to be saved for 10 years or had to be saved for five years. He didn't say that. What he said was not a new convert. So relative to the maturity of the church, if you have a brand new plant on the mission field, you might have someone who's just a few months older than those who are around, but they've aspired to the office and are holding fast the word of truth. Or you may have a mature church where someone is new for a while as it compares to the church. So qualification number 18, he's a man who must have some experience living as a believer in faithfulness before he can be put into the place of an overseer. Now, knowing what we do about the nature of the temptations and pressures from the outside on those who guide the church, and we've looked at a number of those passages over the last several weeks, and where one is desiring to trip up leadership and make the Lord look bad and Christianity look phony, coupled with having to deal with lots of adversaries inside the church, it seems just obvious why the qualification is given. And it's paired with a warning, like the qualification before it, and the one after it. And verse 6, if you look there, not a new convert, then here's what it says, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. So that warning is that he'll become conceited as part of what could happen. That's the word tefuo, literally smoke, or filled with hot air, literally lifted up. King James has lifted up with pride, and so I think we get the sense of it. And then we get the second warning and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. So Paul says the newly planted convert is possible through his inexperience and unwarranted conceit at being put in that position, raises himself up only to get fooled or tempted into sinfulness, and then brought down in the same way in judgment that Satan fell. And we looked at that in Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 1 through 15. So we looked at verse 7 then in our last qualification last time for an elder in this section. Verse 7 tells us this, he must have a good reputation with those outside of the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. And again, we're looking at reputation, we're looking at testimony, we're looking at character, and now not just in front of the church, but also in front of the community. So uh, the Greek adjective is kalos, that's good, and we saw before uh, that word is all over the New Testament. There's a lot of words for good in the New Testament. This one has to do with beauty too, and we saw that's the same word that's used of a, an elder's family that walks in godliness. It's a beauty there, a good reputation. Here is good martyria, that's the word martyr, so a good witness for Christ, that's the idea. It certainly it can be connected to Scripture and someone who's killed for their faith, but if they're killed because of their testimony here, literally the words are beautiful witness, a good testimony in the community. So qualification 19 that we saw last time and we ended with this, the overseer is to be an example to the church of one who has a beautiful witness or a good testimony in the community. And in doing that, you're going to be careful then that you don't bring reproach on Christ. That's the next part of verse 7. He must have a good reputation with those on the outside. Here it is. So we'll not fall into reproach. This is the first danger. What can happen is, and that reproach is the noun. It has to do with shame or reviling someone who talks badly, embarrassment. And then he'll not fall as in Pipto. It's Arab subjunctive. So the question is, he may come into shame. It's possible because of what he does in front of a watching world. And see, that applies to everyone. Everyone has some visibility. So the, the, uh, the standard is not just in the pulpit, it's in the pew. 
there's some visibility for everyone. People watch, and what you want to do is make sure that you don't do the kinds of things that a watching world will interpret as someone who doesn't know Christ and bring embarrassment on, the, on Christianity. And so, depending on your position, you can do things to bring reproach on Christ. Uh, whatever it is that you do for a living, however you spend your days, it's possible to do things that put you in a position where, if it's found out, uh, the Lord looks bad. So, you don't want to put yourself in that spot. Now, when a man aspires to the ministry, he has to be evaluated then as to his ongoing reputation in the community, lest he bring some type of reviling and embarrassment upon himself and by default the church. And then that last part, it says, he must have a good reputation with those on the outside of the church so that he'll not fall into reproach. And then this part, the snare of the devil. And, and this is the second danger. That word snare is the word for a net or a trap. Now, earlier we saw in pride that you can share in the same rapid demotation, embarrassing demotation that happened to Satan because of his pride. Here, though, it's Satan doing the trapping. And again, uh, not because you or I are anything special in comparison to all the rest that goes on in the world. But what we can understand from the passage is that there's a real desire on, the, by the, on the behalf of the evil one, our real enemy, and the unholy angels to be about setting a trap to discredit, to undermine the testimony of someone in leadership, to undermine the credibility of the Lord, to trap the believer in their sin, embarrass them, and Christianity. And see, that's always the issue, isn't it? That you can be doing something that would bring reproach on Christ if they found out, but it also might be that there's a trap being laid for you and the Lord in His sovereignty might allow you to fall into it, which would embarrass you and certainly it would uh, set you back. But here's the thing, the Lord's, the Lord, really the Lord's renown is not in question here, is it? I mean, when it really comes down to uh, the Lord being known in the community, the Lord being known in all of eternity and all of the universe, He is unassailable. So what happens on an individual basis from pastor to pastor or from individual Christian to individual Christian uh, certainly brings reproach on the church, but not ultimately on the Lord. So the Lord may allow these kinds of things to happen to you. But the warning is not to, not to put yourself in a position where the things that you do or say, things that you're allowing in your life are going to put you in a position where you can be trapped by the evil one and undermine the credibility of the Lord, your credibility, and have people blaspheme his name and scoff. Because we know that the devil goes around like a roaring lion seeking to devour people in their sins. A deceiver of the nations, that's his name. He uses skillfully laid snares to do that, to trap believers, to trap leaders, to destroy their integrity. And, and we don't want to be trapped, do we? Keep this in mind as you do your work, as you, do your, as you go to school, as you do your, your, uh, whatever it is that you do each day. You, you don't want to be trapped by a carefully laid snare because we know that he does that now. If we didn't know before, you recognize that this is part of the world that you live in, which is another reason we're told to avoid putting a new convert into office. Second Corinthians 4.2, we'll look at this in just a moment, renounce the hidden things because of shame. So if you want to make sure that you don't get to a point where you're going to be shamed, first of all, understand what the Word of God says, rightly dividing it so you won't be ashamed. Secondly, Renounce the hidden things. Remember, in everyone's life, there perhaps are things that, if they were known, would be embarrassing to them and shameful. And Paul says he's renounced those hidden things because he doesn't want to continue to nurse them and have them in his life. So he's constantly doing this battle of renouncing those things. Because hidden things only stay hidden long, a short time. You give it enough time, hidden things come out and embarrass you, both you and Christ. So you make sure that you take care of that. And this is why we have to be so cautious. We're going to be tempted. We're weak. 
We have those areas where Satan works on us, and we're going to stumble. I'd like you to turn, if you would, hold your finger right here, turn to James chapter 3. And this is an illustration we used right at the beginning of our study. We only took one verse, but I want to look at verses 1 through 8, just comment on it. James was the half-brother of Jesus, called one of the pillars of the church in Jerusalem, an elder, very active in a ministering, persecuted church, so he knows a little bit about what he's talking about as he talks about the church, and he talks about people in the church. And so we're going to look at what he has to say and illustrate some of the things we've been looking at already. But look at verse 1 of James chapter 3. He says this, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren. Well, why is that? Knowing that as such, we will incur a stricter judgment. Now, what I like about James is he makes the warning and then brings himself in on the back end of it. We will. So, the idea is this is not a position for everyone. As we think about those who are in eldership, we understand in First Timothy 3, 1, only the ones the Holy Spirit's called to the spot, as we examined earlier, and even if He is called then, the warning still applies. It's still important. And if you teach anyone spiritual things in any setting, the warning is for you. It's not that you shouldn't disciple. It isn't that you shouldn't discern and help people uh, in their times. It's just that when you open your mouth to teach spiritual things, recognize, James says, let not many do this because there's a stricter judgment that comes on those who do it. And that just, again, affirms and under, uh, undergirds our understanding that what you teach from the Word of God and how you approach it is important, that you have to understand what it says what it means by what it says, and how it applies before you open your mouth. So this is in any spiritual setting. It's very, very important. If you do it, you need to do it with great care because there is a stricter judgment for those who do it. Then he says, look, look at verse 2. He says this, For we all stumble in many ways. So he bring, again brings himself in with everyone else who teaches. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says... Why are we talking about that? Because we're talking about be not many teachers. So that's the context. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. And that's definitely a place where teachers can stumble in their words. Proverbs 10, 19 says, where there are many words, sin is not far away. Anytime you engage in any conversation, sin can't be far, even when it's a normal conversation, if it's a lot of words. But particularly if you're teaching Sin is not far away, and that's very, very important. If you make uh, your vocation, if your vocation is teaching, then you have to be very careful. Jesus' own words in Matthew 13, or 12, 36, rather, every careless word that people speak, they shall give account for in the judgment. So the Lord keeps track, and the careless words that you say, and the flippant way you approached it, and the, and the thing you told somebody that you thought was spiritual advice that wasn't and didn't line up with the Scriptures, these things are remembered. And so this is very, very important, and I think it, it plays very, very well in our understanding of our passage. And just to illustrate how hard this is to make sure your words are as they should be, verse 3 says this, look there. Now, if we put the bits into horses' mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Verse 4, look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. Verse 5. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. Verse 6, and the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. 
The tongue is set up among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. So here's the thing. I, think, I don't think I have to make an illustration for any of you any more than I do for me that I wish that there were words that the second I said them I could have recalled. Don't you agree? It's very difficult to manage your words. And you'll know that you're beginning to be spirit control when you begin to get control of that first response. Every species, verse 7, a beast and bird and reptile, creature of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by human race. But no one, verse 8, can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. So here's the thing. The one who doesn't offend with his tongue is a perfect man. Are there any perfect men? And all the ladies said, amen. And we'll stumble, and we have to be cautious, right? So this is part of the idea that we don't want to fall into Satan's trap. We certainly don't want to do it because we became a teacher when we shouldn't have been, or we weren't careful when we were doing it. We want to be leaders that lead people out of Satan's traps, not into them, and not into them ourselves. And as we move into this next section, it really picks up in verse 8, and we introduce another almost duplicate set of standards. Again, one standard both for the pulpit and the pew, for the deacon and the pew, not two standards. we got to realize that um, I think it's important to say that there isn't perfection here. Okay? There's not perfection here. And I'd like to look at some scriptures for a moment that help us understand that no one's perfect. There's no perfect man. What these passages point out is that the Lord has ordained a standard for spiritual leaders. And what's to be achieved consistently over the long haul? And by God's grace and the power of the Spirit, uh, those who lead the church are to meet those standards. And if you don't believe that, uh, I or anyone who leads you spiritually as an elder is meeting those standards because they're non-negotiable then you should go to me or another elder or a, or a deacon and have a conversation. And I want to pause here to make sure that you understood uh, that's how I'm coming at it. And I've always come at it this way, communicate it to you. And we're going to see uh, those who serve the church and as deacons, you have to come to them too. But this is where you're going to start. And in just a few months, we're going to get to this passage in 1 Timothy 5.19. But I want to touch on it just briefly because it affirms that this is the case. In verse 19 of 1 Timothy 5, Paul tells Timothy in the letter as he tells him how to run the church and how the church should be run, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses, those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest will also be fearful of sinning. What did Paul understand about his own life and those who lead the church? They're not perfect and there may be some problems. But Timothy's given this instruction by the Apostle Paul, knowing that there's going to be a lot of false accusations. There'll be some single people coming up and saying, well, I didn't like what he did here, or he did this, or he said this about me, or whatever, okay? And Paul tells Timothy, don't accept this single accusation. There has to be some witnesses. And there's an active spiritual warfare going on, so there has to be a biblical process in order to filter this out. And it's never going to be one person telling someone else what they think is wrong with the pastor or the deacon or anyone else. It's never going to be that way. If it falls into that category, it's gossip. And that goes very well with Matthew 18, 15, where Jesus gives the future apostles in the church, of the church this instruction. He says this to the church in general, which you'll see mirrors very well what we just looked at. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. There's your first step. 
If you think someone is not meeting the standard in leadership, if you think someone beside you is walking in sinfulness, what are you supposed to do? Go talk to someone else about them? Tell them, hey, I think this person's messing up? No, what's it say? Go straight to that person and privately approach this issue with them. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, verse 16, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If you believe there's a problem, go privately to the individual. And then the number of people who have to be understand and see the problem, not in on it because somebody gossip, but understand there is a problem there, are part of what meshes well with 1 Timothy chapter 5 and this whole process. And then we see again in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, anybody in the church, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. The whole idea is what? Restoration. Every single step in every part of this, we saw in 1 Timothy 5, um, rebuke them so they can repent and be fearful of sinning, and everyone else will be too. And we see in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, um, make sure that you tell the church so they can understand what's going on. See, the whole thing is, though, you want to bring them back. If you go privately, you win your brother if they listen to you. So go in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Because are there any perfect men? There are not. And so you got to make sure that you have, uh, have a short sin list, that you have desired to be in humility, come and be part of a healing process. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Part of it is bearing the burden. You may, there may be some burdens you need to bear to help someone. For if anyone thinks he's something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. How many are something? No one. Everybody's nothing. But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. So we're not comparing ourselves with ourselves. We're just making sure before the Lord that we walk in righteousness. So if you believe that the elder is not holding to the qualifications, and I think it's important to stop here and say that because we just got through looking at seven verses of them, then you got to go to him first. And you may be right, or you may be mistaken. And what I wanted to make clear with all of that is that I'm not perfect. Probably every sin that you struggle with, I've struggled with too. I don't in any way want to come off as pious or self-righteous or flawless. And if you know me, you already know that. And any man who puts himself up there as unassailable is in trouble. Should never be a leader who is unassailable. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, let him who thinks he stand take heed that he does not fall. So the whole warning is, if you think you've arrived, you better be very careful. There's always an active battle going on. And so I wanted to give some balance, in case you thought I was holding myself or other elders here at the church uh, up as people with no spiritual struggles, or perhaps you thought that. No spiritual battles, no failures, no sins, because that's simply not true. My humanness, my residing sinfulness, my fallenness in this body does limit the success of my work, as it does for you too. You've got a new you clothed in an unredeemed body, which has its appetites, and you have to rein those in all the time. And I have to struggle in my life, just like you do in your life, to honor the Lord Jesus. And I'm using first-person singular pronouns here primarily about myself, because I'm prone to use second-person singular to preach to you. And so I think it's only fair that I just say I instead of us. So I feel uh, my own sins are always before me. It's not hard to think of areas where I struggle as I lead the church, and I think it's appropriate as a balance. 
And just as James 5.16 says and tells the church, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So the areas then that I'm going to talk about in just a second that are pertinent to this discussion may be representative of other church leaders too. And that's what's on my mind here. These can be my problems and maybe others who lead find trouble here too. But the first one is discouragement. And that's probably number one. To yield in the tendency to be discouraged is an easy one in the ministry. And that's a sin. It's very common. Our, our missionaries, I've spoken to many of them privately over, about this very issue. We all have high expectations. I have high aspirations and high hopes for myself, for my own ministry. I, I have certain requirements that I set for my messages. And I, and I want to teach in a certain way. And, and as I teach week after week after week after week, that continual pattern of that... I feel like I have my highs, but in perspective, I feel like I have a lot more lows. And believe me, that those can become times of really great discouragement. And I have high aspirations of study time and prayer time and leadership responsibilities. And I have high hopes uh, for the responses of people and self-discipline. And often, as I've told you before, I get to the end of a Sunday evening and I look back on all of it and I feel like I haven't done very well with any of it. And that can become very discouraging. And that can lead or contribute to the next area, which can be apathy. What I mean by that is when I do these things each week, but especially preaching and teaching, and that's a big responsibility to do that correctly. And when I think I'm not doing it correctly or the standard that I've set for myself, I'm not making it in that area. And I live with that week after week after week. The tendency is for me to become indifferent. And that's sinful too. And I just say to myself sometimes, what difference does it make? Some of the people don't care, and some others just want to argue, and others aren't listening anyway, so why does it matter? So I can become apathetic or indifferent to it so that it won't affect me anymore, and that's always the temptation I have. And I know guys that have become harsh, they've been in ministry a long time and are elderly, and have become harsh and unpleasant, distant from people either because they've been hurt so many times by unrealized expectations that they had for themselves or disappointed by people that gossip and backbite about their shortcomings that they've eventually built a wall between themselves and the people that they've ministered to so they won't feel like that anymore. And that's always a temptation to one degree or another in the ministry. And I felt that way a time or two. And that can lead me not to want to jump in wholeheartedly and try something new or do some new thing or special or add some new ministry or try a new idea which is going to add to my workload because I think sinfully it won't make any difference. What's the big deal? That's the, and then that leads really to the third thing that can plague me where I fail and that's laziness. And it's not that I'm not busy. I can stay busy all week long doing exactly what I want to do. I think you can relate to that, can't you? But not what needs to be done. And whether or not I do it really is a test of commitment. And it's really failing in regard to Romans chapter 12, verse 11. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Because this is a test of character. Not how busy I look, but how diligent I am in doing the things I don't want to do, but know that I have to do. That's the test of diligence. Doing the priority things and doing them as fervently as I can because it's always easiest to take the path of least resistance. And maybe you can relate to that. 
So those are the things I personally struggle with, and I'm not perfect. And along with all the other things that you struggle with, and I have to struggle with too. And to fail at any of those things impacts the effectiveness of ministry that the Lord's put me in. And it impacts the effectiveness of ministry that the Lord's put you in. And there's some illustrations, though, that are helpful for me that encourage me from the Word. And I'm going to give you just a few of them, and hopefully they'll be a boost to you. But here's one that I really enjoy. Paul struggled with this. He struggled with discouragement and effectiveness and whether or not he'd done the right thing. In verse 1, he says of chapter 2, or, or 2 Corinthians 4, he says, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. God gave him and every elder a ministry. And Paul said he'd received it as a mercy, as I understand I have. What's that mean? It just means that it's God's mercy that has been given everything that I have, including the ministry and the opportunity to minister to you. Because I don't deserve it. And I know me. And so that he's sustained me and helped me and brought me under his, his, uh, his pressure and his discipline and kept me where I need to be. That's a mercy because I don't deserve it. I, don't get the, I shouldn't have the opportunity to build spiritually into other people's lives. And you need to understand that too. If the Lord's given you a place of teaching, he's given you a family to disciple, he's given you a small group to lead, or whatever it is. Listen, that's a mercy because we don't deserve that. Everything we have is a mercy. Our salvation and everything laid upon it, blessing after blessing is all mercy, isn't it? And Paul understood that. He didn't deserve it. It was God's mercy at work. Paul says, so because it's, we have this ministry and it's a mercy... We don't what? We don't lose heart. What's, that? What's another way to say that? We don't get discouraged because we recognize it's a mercy. And that's something we didn't deserve. God gave it to us in His grace. And then He did battle where He needed to do battle in order not to be disqualified. There's some things He can't control, and there's other things that in being discouraged, He has to say, okay, this is a mercy. And then He says this, and we looked at this just a moment ago. Verse 2, but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame. Paul says, I can't control those other things, but these things I need to control because I don't want to be cast away. Paul struggled with being discouraged. Do you remember when he talked to the Galatians? After all the time I've been with you, have you so soon moved away from the things that I taught you? I mean, you can see Paul just thinking, has this made any difference at all? How about in Corinth? He was there 18 months, taught them carefully the word, and then how many trips did he have to make, and how much did he have to endure from the church? They weren't listening, and then he sent Timothy, and he sent others. He said, listen, don't, don't be hard on them. They're going to teach you the same things I've taught you. So, you know, you can understand. Paul says, there's some things I can't control, and I'm not responsible for their response. I'm only responsible for doing it as a mercy and then making sure that I'm making sure now I'm not putting a place where I can walk onto a net that Satan set for me. So he says, I've renounced hidden things because of shame. And we looked at that already. And then he says, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. I have to take care of the things that would disqualify me I have to renounce shameful things, and it's a constant battle, and I'm sure it is with you, and we're in good company with the Apostle Paul. Don't make excuses, just renounce them, and then recognize that when you teach the Word of God faithfully and you do it as you should, that is a manifestation of truth in the conscience of the people who hear, regardless if they respond or 
some point that's going to be called into question. You understood that it was truth, but you didn't respond. Paul just says, listen, I can just trust the Lord to make that clear in the conscience of the people who hear. Then he says this in verse 5. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. So he says this. Let's keep it all in perspective. We are slaves for Jesus' sake. It's not about us, and it never has been. Paul says, this isn't about me. I'm a slave to a master, and I have to get over myself and my prideful expectations of what I think I need to do and how I think I need to perform. And if I don't live up to that, then somehow, you know, that's, that's a negative reflection on me. Paul says, listen, you are a slave. Do what your master says. That's how I encourage myself, Paul says. And I encourage myself with us too. And then verse 7, he says, but we have, and this spins right off of it, we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We're in earthen vessels, not some beautiful thing that sits on the table to be admired. It's a big clay water jar, okay? Not pretty, just useful. That's who we are, imperfect. And God's going to use that. He uses that imperfection because then the glory goes to Him and not to us, right? When the message is powerful, it's because it was powerful in Him and spoke to your hearts through the Holy Spirit, not because you aspire to some level, and then that was immediately translated into effectiveness. And I'm sure that our deacons would say the same thing, because I know them, and I also know that they have qualifications, and they know they have qualifications for their office, and that's what we're going to look at next time. And our missionaries, and the guys who stand in the pulpit, many of those are the same guys, and they would all say the same thing. They're not perfect. They have to be an example, but they aren't perfect. They have places where they struggle, just like you do. They don't want to come across as pious because they live up to some qualification. That qualification is hard, and it's relentless, and they constantly have to come up under it in order to be qualified to do what they do, but they don't want any kind of recognition for that because they struggle just like you do. And so then God identifies these men through their calling, and their character, and their hospitality, and their family life, and their maturity, and their reputation, and that's what He wants for the church. They should expect those things of those who lead them. Because the men God identifies are for the church as an example. And he's to teach the word and then live the word. Because if he says one thing and then does another, or if he says and does less than the guidelines God has set up for public worship, then the church is less and not more. It's less. Now, it may not seem that it's less. It doesn't always look that it's less on the outside. It may look very modern It may look very cosmopolitan and very trendy and cool and like things are really happening there. But Jesus had some very important things to say to churches like that, and he addresses those who lead them. And if you were with us when we went through Revelation, you understand that Revelation gives its own outline. It says things that were and things that are and things that will be. The things that were is that vision that happened at the beginning and all those things Christ in eternity past. The things that are are what? Churches at Ephesus. We're still in the church age, so everything it says to the churches here is still uh, viable and applicable and authoritative for us today. And then things which will be is, is uh, the rapture and then the tribulation and all that's going to happen, the glorious state and eternal state. So in Revelation chapter 3, verse 1, we recognize that it's talking to the church age 
And we're still in the church age, and it's talking about churches that haven't submitted to these guidelines and leaders who haven't submitted to these guidelines, and now we're in trouble. So he says to the angel of the church at Sardis. Now, it's important if you were with us, you understand when he says angel, that's the word messenger. And he isn't talking about an angel as a holy angel. He's talking about the person who leads the church, the messenger of the church at Sardis. Right. He's talking to the leader, the pastor. I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are what? You're dead. And see, we see this a lot, beloved, in mainline Protestant uh, denominations. On the outside, it looks like it's really happening. It's a beautiful, big edifice, and it's really like, it looks like it's really accomplishing everything. See, but it's what? It's dead. You look like you're alive, but you're dead. Why? Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. For I've not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So what's happening? They're not coming in line with the things that they're supposed to be doing. Either the leader or the church or both. So remember what you've received and heard. You already had the correct instruction. Keep it. And what's the next word? Repent. It's always that, isn't it? It's always about restoration. It's always about you're not in the right, going in the right direction. Fix it. It's the same with Timothy at Ephesus. These elders were not where they needed to be, some of them. Fix it. Here are the guidelines. This is what you have to come up under. Therefore, he says, if you do not wake up, I'll come like a thief, and you'll not know at what hour I will come to you. What's that mean? Well, in every other one, when he says that, he's talking about taking away the candle or the lamp from the church. It just means the church dies. It looks like it's doing what it's supposed to do, but inside it's not doing anything it's supposed to do, and there's no power there. And then we see the same thing again in Revelation 3.14. He says, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of creation of God. Who's that? Jesus. Just so that you were un, if you were unclear, those are some of the words that describe him, and they're marvelous. Says this, I know your deeds, that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were hot or cold, so because you're lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I'm rich and have become wealthy and have need of Thing. What does it just mean? It just means it looks like something's happening. It looks like it's wealthy. There's affluence, right? There's things happening. If you go on the website, man, it's perfect. If you, if you write something to them on the website, man, 20 seconds later, you got a response. They're on top of it. So it looks, like it's, it looks like it's going like it needs to do, and they don't need anything. But he says to this church, he says, you do not know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love I reprove and discipline therefore be zealous and what's the last word repent it's always that so when the church doesn't come in line with those who lead her don't come in line and do the things that are required from the Lord then you have and then the Lord has to address these kinds of churches, and it continues to address these kind of churches all the way up till today. Because, beloved, let me ask you, is it really one of the options to redefine the church model? After everything that you've seen, if you've been with us any number of weeks, do you think it's really an option to redefine the church model? In specific instructions we've received, in all of the things that are said here in imperative, is, is, it, is it an option? Is it one of the options from the language of our study and the message of Jesus that we've just read that the church can ordain whomever they want? Do you really think that's one of the options in the clear instruction of the Word of God? 
You would only say yes if you didn't understand what the Word of God said. That's the only way you could say yes. Do you really think it's an option that we don't have to worry about the qualifications of the men who lead the church? And what's the rhetorical answer to all those? No, of course it's not one of the options. Do you think the Lord, and here, just look at it from another way. Do you think the Lord wants anything less of the rest of us than to be blameless? Which is one of the requirements for those who lead the church. And we, I've given you the passages that actually say those words for those who attend. Do you think he wants anything less than a one-woman man? A temperate man, wineless? Does he want anything less than someone who's concerned about their testimony before the world? Do you think he wants anything less than that? Does he want anything less than good behavior? Does he want to settle for anything less than hospitality? Is God okay with anything less than competent teaching? Has God ever been satisfied with undisciplined, headstrong, rebellious children ever in either the Old Testament or the New Testament? Does he want anything less than good families? Does he want anything less than spiritual maturity? Does he want anything less than a good reputation? Of course not. Are they hard? Yes. Does the, do the leaders have to model them? Yes, they do. But does he want anything less from anyone else? And so he picks men to lead so they can be an example. So I say to you, because we paused on this, so that you understand my own heart, please pray that God will raise up more. And please pray for the ones you have. Because now you know better than before how you can pray. And I don't want to go through this just to remind both you and me that it matters what we do and how we do it. The church belongs to the Lord. He's in charge of it. And we can't say that we love God and not do what He says. No long worship set, no long prayers, no creative sermon replaces doing the things that He says to do in the way that He says to do them. In fact, if you want to express your love to God, the love of God is this, that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. And that is all through the New Testament, all through the New Testament and the Old Testament. Not long worship sets. Okay, you, if you come in disobedient to the Lord, a long worship set without repentant heart is not going to solve anything and the Lord doesn't think you love Him. He knows that you love Him when you obey Him. See, that's our expression of love. And so as we think about the church, as we think about personal life, as we think about coming up under those things that we know we're supposed to do as believers to have a testimony before the community and before the church, there's a song that um, it's called Your Will Be Done. It's by Johnny Robinson and Rich Thompson. It's City of Light. You may know it. And it calls all of us back to the most important thing. It goes like this. May it be a blessing to you as you listen to it. <laughs> Your will be done, my God and Father, as in heaven, so on earth. My heart is drawn to self-exalting. Help me seek your kingdom first. As Jesus walked, so I shall walk, held by your same unchanging love. Be still, my soul, O oh, lift your voice and pray. Father, not my will, but yours be done. How in that garden he persisted. I may never fully know the fearful weight of true obedience was held by him alone. What wondrous faith to bear that cross to bear my sin, what wondrous love. My hope was sure when there my Savior prayed, Father, 
not my will, but yours be done. When I am lost and when I am broken, in the night of fear and doubt, still I will trust in my good Father. Yes, to one great King I bow. As Jesus rose, so I shall rise. In ransom glory at the throne. My heart restored with all your saints I sing. Father, not my will, but yours be done. As we go forth, our God and Father, lead us daily in the fight. That all the world might see your glory and your name be lifted high. And in this name we overcome, for you shall see us safely home. Now as your church, we lift our voice and pray. Father, not my will, but yours be done. And in this name we overcome, for you shall see us safely home. Now as your church, we lift our voice and pray. Father, not my will, yours be done. Let's bow and pray if you would with me. Our Heavenly Father, we come humbly before you. As Jesus taught his own disciples to pray, as they recognized where you are in heaven and who you are, the very next thing he told them to say is, let your will be done on earth just like it's done in heaven. Not our will, but yours be done. And as we think about the church, as we think about our part in it, and the ministry that we do, and the places that we plug in, and the leaders that we put in place. Overarching desire. Not our will, but yours be done. You've placed Christ as head over all things the church, and he has very clearly said what he wishes to be done. So to the best of our ability, by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us to do just that. And the standards that we looked at, as we understand the leaders have to, as a non-negotiable, come up under them, help us as well to model all those things, to become more like a repenter of Jesus. It's our desire to do that, to have the church very clearly model what it looks like, your glory, and let your name be lifted high because of how we live. Not our will, but yours be done. We pray this in the name of your blessed Son and all God's people said.